0: Time for the Blind Broadcaster Podcast presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Blind from birth, Luther King has never let that stop him from attaining his goal on becoming a blind broadcaster. And now, here's the blind broadcaster himself, Luther King.
1: Hey, Hope you and yours had a very happy October and Halloween. And now as we head into the season... Of thankfulness in the month of November and head toward Thanksgiving, sending you my earliest Thanksgiving blessings and wishes to you and your family and welcome you back to the Blind Broadcaster podcast. My guest this week is the departed voice of the Virginia Cavaliers and now the new radio voice of the undisputed defending NBA champions of the world, Milwaukee Bucks. My guest on this week's podcast is Dave Kane. That's K-O-E-H-N if you're scoring at home. You can find Dave Kane on Twitter at DaveKanePXP. And you can find me on Facebook with my email address as well if you have suggestions for people you'd like to hear on the podcast. The email is as follows, luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at king underscore tsb, and my Instagram is lking.cardinalsfan85. He stopped playing baseball in 2013, but still the men's basketball and football voice, the director of broadcasting of UVA, the voice of the Hoos, Dave when did broadcasting come on your radar?
2: When did I first get interested in broadcasting? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's funny because I had this past Christmas, I went back home to Colorado where my family still lives, where I grew up. And my mom had a uh, a Christmas present for me that she had wrapped and framed. And it was, she had found an old, I guess it would have been like a a project from when I was in like the third or fourth grade and I had written out it said what do you want to do when you get older and I had said uh, become a sports broadcaster so you know it's funny when you're that age you know you don't remember how old you are and when you started thinking various things but it was it was fascinating to see some actual documentation of the fact that when I was 10 years old I wanted to be a sportscaster so Um, I guess I can say uh, officially then, maybe it was a little before, I don't know, but I was, like a lot of us, calling games from the TV and that type of thing as a kid, pretending like I was Larry Zimmer, the voice of the Denver Broncos who I grew up listening to, um, and trying to recreate those those, uh, magical John Elway moments, but I was captivated from a young age at that. Now, whether I actually knew it was going to be my career, I don't think I could have said that really until maybe midway through college that this was something that I was probably going to really pursue. So um, I, I guess it began uh, in, in earnest as a very young kid, but, but probably didn't really begin to really come to fruition until my college years.
1: Okay, follow-up. Well, two follow-ups. First, do you still have that class project from as a Christmas gift? And B, where do you have it now?
2: I do. I, I I hung it up in our basement. It's got uh, it's got a couple little things on it. it. It's a really cute little like letter that I had put together, and it's got even some illustrations on. It. I don't know. It, it it's a trip, and so I don't know where my mom found it, where she dug it out of, but um, she she ultimately did, and and she she framed the thing. So it's kind of a nice little relic now, and I have it, I have it in my basement, and it's actually you know it's funny. It was up on a wall, but I actually moved it because. My favorite picture that I have in my basement—and this is more than you asked—but I'll expound a bit here. The favorite poster I have is one that I got from the national championship game when Virginia, actually, it was the final four game against Auburn when Kyle Guy got fouled shooting that three-point shot from the corner.
1: Was that and, the one where he kind of stumbled and kind of basically came, had no room in the? Yeah, that's right. He, he came kinda, Defender, that's right. Tried to come out on him, and kind of was late, and he just hooked him by just that much, and the official called it.
2: Yep, and and so at the the moment, I mean, it was the last second of the game, and Virginia was down by two points at the time, and he stepped Mm -hmm. to the free throw line and hit all three free throws in that incredibly crazy pressure situation to send Virginia to the national championship game. So long story short, I have a poster, a picture of that, a photo somebody took from the baseline where – I'm in it. My crew is in it. And we're all watching and calling that shot from the bottom of it. And then here's Kyle guy hitting this, uh, this historic shot, or at least taking this historic shot where he was ultimately fouled. And so that was in my office prior to the pandemic. Once the pandemic happened, and we're not allowed to work from our office, I said, you know what, I kind of like looking at that. (laughs) So I brought it home from my office, and it's now living in my basement where that other photo ha- or that other uh, framed piece was. So I've got a couple cool little things down there in my man den, but you know, uh, during tough times, you always want to kind of look at things that bring you up. And, and that was a moment that definitely lifts my spirits. When I think back to it uh, from, from yesteryear.
1: Speaking of the national championship, I've always wondered this when you have national TV, national radio, and you get to meet Kevin Coogler and all the crews and Jim Nance and the TV broadcast crews, where do they have the local broadcast teams located, broadcast wise? Plus, due to the fact that you're not allowed to actually carry any of the NCAA tournament games except on the local flagship station.
2: Well, we can carry the games on all of our stations. You can't stream them, though. So, ah, so all yes. of our all of our stations carry it. Um, but so, where were we positioned? We we were posi- we actually had a pretty good vantage point. I, I was actually right next to. Uh, the e- the ESPN crew, Sean McDonough was right to m- just to my right, uh, and he was calling the game for ESPN Global or whatever it is international. So he was doing it for their international feed, and I was right next to him. And then uh, so we were in the way it's set up. You're literally you know because it's a raised floor mm-hmm. in these football uh, stadiums where they have the Final Fours. So was that the NRG Stadium? That was in, in, in Minneapolis. Oh, the... So, uh, yeah, why can't I think of that uh, name? All of a sudden. U.S. Bank but, Stadium. Yeah, U.S. Bank Stadium. That's right. And so we, um, you know, you're sitting face level with the floor, which is a unique vantage point. And I'd been warned that it's it's really tricky when you're, especially with a television camera mm-hmm. that's on a, a track that goes periodically right by you. And you have to make sure you're, nothing's touching that track, any of your, your notes or whatever it is. Cause it'll get caught up on that track. But um, I thought it was kind of a neat vantage point. Personally, I, I did not struggle with it. I kind of thought I might, but in, in, you know, honestly grateful to be up close to the action like we were, cause we were right in the middle of it where we were sitting courtside there. So it, it's a pretty uh, unique setup and a, and a pretty cool setup uh, for that final four. As far as I'm concerned, it, it was really a great place to feel the energy of it and see the game the way we did. And, you know, I mean, it, that's a perfect case in point that, play that I'm referencing in that photo was one where you did need to have a good angle to call it right because Mm -hmm. in the arena at the time or in the stadium when it happened, the public address did not come out and say that there was a foul for probably 15 to 20 seconds after leaving a a number of fans at the arena and stadium thinking the game was over.
1: And you know the strange thing about that?
2: But I noticed right away because where we were sitting, I had a perfect angle to see that he'd been fouled. So I could I could put it into my broadcast call because of that angle. But I'm sorry, right. what you, what was your question, Luther?
1: No, but what I'm saying is the strange thing I noticed about that was when I was listening to the national feed with um, Kevin Kugler and the rest of them on the broadcast team on the Westwood One side of it, I didn't even think they had an idea that there was a foul call, but maybe they did because, I mean, I heard a whistle, but I wasn't sure if it was out of bounds, if he was fouled, because I wasn't sure exactly. Kind of figured the shot kind of went up, but we, we I couldn't had a tell. Yeah, and,
2: and, and, and you know, and I I felt very you know fortunate because of that. But you know, some of it was because it was on our side of the court too, where we were set up. But I I knew the second it happened that he'd been fouled, <laughs> and so I was able to incorporate that into the call. Um, in a moment like that, you know, it's it's uh, unlike the Purdue game, the the game before, <laughs> where it was me. Uh, along with the television broadcast, Brian Anderson, and then Brandon Godden for Westwood One. All of us, for whatever reason, called the shot from Mamadi Diakite to tie that game.
1: I remember that shot.
2: We all called it for the win. It was the most eerie, strange thing. I I cannot tell you why. I I, I have a a couple of theories, but – unbelievable that three different broadcasters all made the same mistake on that shot and, and I can't say it was because of vantage point I think it was just because it was such a crazy play and you just never thought that the ball could travel that far that quickly on a pass you thought the only chance that we were going to have to shoot was a three-pointer so all of a sudden he's taking a shot inside the arc and I think it played tricks with all of our minds
1: it almost felt like the it almost felt like the Eastern Regional Final with Duke Kentucky when they did the long baseball pass to yeah. Christian Lightning.
2: Yeah, similar. I mean, and, and it was obviously similar on the similar uh, stakes on the line.
1: But also, when you think about it, is like, is this for the win or is this going to be for a tie? Because you don't know if you know, like you said, with Kyle Guy stepping back, shooting the three, stumbling up, stumbling around, flopping around like a fish, trying to do a sales job for the official. So, the, you know, when the defender comes up late, hooks him, kind of half-crab, and the official makes the call, but they don't know if it's an out-of-bounds or if it's a foul or if it's an offensive foul or if he just lost the ball off his foot.
2: Yeah, it, exactly. So, I mean, it's it just it, – it, you know, and those are the things that, that uh, you live for and also keep you up at night as, as a broadcaster because you want to get it right. And... Now, did
1: they replay all three calls or was it just your call – or how did they, you know, did they have all three broadcasts?
2: Well, I'll tell you what happened was when I, I had seen and heard about the television broadcast and what had happened with Brian Anderson, uh, I had, I reached out to Brian because I knew he was taking a lot of heat for it. And mm-hmm. I, I just, I sent him a, a note just to say that I made the same mistake. So don't sweat it. You know, I mean, like we're all something about it and and he mentioned to me that Brandon Godin had also reached out to him to say that he made the same mistake. Oh my. So it, it was just really a, a strange series of events that was part of that already crazy game and then you throw that into the mix and it was even stranger.
1: Where you were living at the time <clears throat> when you got that project going through high school were there opportunities for you to get repetitions on calling games? Or did you have to wait to go to college to get those repetitions?
2: Yeah, Luther, relative to a lot of the Syracuse guys that are doing this seemingly from the time they're born out of the womb, <laughs> I was late to start as a broadcaster. I, I, I knew I was interested, but in high school, I was definitely not calling games. I, I In oh, fact, wow. in high school – I think my my initial thought at that point in my life was like, maybe I want to be a six and 10 sports anchor, something of of that nature. And I I don't know that it even really fully occurred to me that I could have a career as a play by play guy, even Mm -hmm. though I thought about it. But anyway, put it put it this way. I was not a very career minded high school kid at that point. I was kind of just enjoying life and- you know
1: something i don't I don't think unless you are so goal driven and oriented, a lot of people I run into that you see. I don't think a lot of people really have an idea of what they really want to do until later in life anyway.
2: Yeah, I think you're right for, for most people. Um, now, in broadcasting, we do run into a number of <laughs> guys that, that have just said on this, that, you know, you asked me when I first started to think I wanted to do this. Well, I mm-hmm. told you when I first started thinking of wanting to do it. But but again, I didn't really truly begin pursuing it professionally until I was in college and, you know, when I was in high school, um, I was on a debate team. And at that time, I actually had a, a teacher in high school who really believed in me at that point. And I'll never forget. She reached out to me. She reached out to my mom and she said he could do something in broadcasting if he wanted to. And you know she had spotted that very early, and and you know I, here I am just this goofy high school kid. I didn't know what I was. Doing. So you know I get to college, and uh, ultimately I go to the University of Kansas, and I was fortunate to be. And, and I knew I wanted to go to Kansas because I thought I had heard they had a really good sports broadcasting program and a professor in Tom Hedrick, who had. I was just going to of- ask
1: you about him.
2: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and Tom Hedrick. So he, so I had Tom in in college, and. I was in a sports casting class. Uh, Brian Seaman, who's the television voice of the Clippers was in that class with me as well. He, he I
1: miss him on radio. I'm yeah, sorry.
2: He's, he's terrific. Uh, you know, whatever he does. And so I'm happy for him because it was a great opportunity, but he is great on radio. And, and I
1: think he's better on radio. If you really yeah. that, that's just me.
2: Yeah. Well, I, you know, radio gives you an opportunity to use more verbiage than television does. And, I think in some ways it allows you to show a little more artistry than television does. And, and here's the other thing. Brian's new to television, so I'm sure he'll just get better and better as he continues to do it. But I, I think he does a great job. But, you know, anyway, so in those classes, you know, we had some some good broadcasters. He's a little older than I am, so he was a little more far, further along than when I got there. But I got a chance to call some games doing college you know, games, and I got to do these games at Allen Fieldhouse, do some U, KU baseball and football games and cut my teeth a little bit. Boy, I, I can only imagine how bad those tapes must have been, but <laughs> i uh, that's when I started calling games, and, and that's when I knew. You know, I, I do remember the first time I took a tape into class for review with Tom Hedrick, he was – Tom was ruthlessly honest in his assessments, and I'll never forget he – he heard my first tape. He said, you got a shot. He said, you've got a shot. You've got a lot of work to do, but you've got a shot. And he, he identified that early. And that was, that was kind of a boost of confidence that I needed. And, uh, and and I still, yeah, I think about that to this day, but yeah, it was an interesting start to the whole field for me. um, And, and probably unlike a lot of guys.
1: Answering me this. Was Hedrick, more of a taskmaster slash perfectionist, or was he, in your eyes, a broadcasting father figure, kind of like a parent without being a parent, per se?
2: You know, it depends when you had Tom, uh, in my opinion, because I've heard different, you know, there are various things. I think I would say... Now, Brian Seaman would probably tell you that he, he may have been more of the father figure, but I think he had him a little earlier than I did. But, I, you know, for me, it probably wasn't that, that much that way for me. It, it was more uh, teaching and using his experience and looking through his lens and hearing his expertise in those types of things. Um, and it could be a little bit of a taskmaster feel. I, I remember I, was, I, had, I felt like I had to be on my toes when I would go to talk to him.
1: More like walking on eggshells? Yeah, a little bit.
2: You you, you wanted. You didn't want to disappoint. And and again, part of this was probably because of the fact that I think I was a little bit of a late bloomer. Um, I, I don't know. I think I was maybe a little more clueless than I would like to admit at that point in time. And I was working and I was earnest in all of these things. But <laughs> I don't know. I, I wasn't quite as far along maybe. And so probably there was a little more exposed at that time. But uh, that 's a tough one to answer, and it probably depends on who you 're talking to and you know, when mr.
0: King,
1: and they will work with him. I think a lot of people you know I, there are a lot of people that I run into and they 're late to the party, but you know as long as you get there as long as you can find a seat at the table you 're pretty good in my book because as long as you can find a way to persevere and just get there
2: that 's right and and you know mentorship is a huge part of the Puzzle, and and I was very fortunate. For me, a little bit more of that parental broadcasting figure in my <laughs> life was, if you was was Gary Bender, uh, who's another Kansas guy who I had the fortune of meeting when I was in college. He he actually lived in Colorado Springs at the time, and I got connected to him through my parents. Interestingly enough, um, and to this day, I hold a very close relationship with Gary Bender. And, and he was really instrumental in, in helping me navigate the industry um, through all those times and, and became good friends with him and, and really am to this day still. So, um, But, you know, and, and then – but it is kind of neat because a number of the Kansas guys, like Kevin Harlan's a guy that I've turned to quite a bit of late. Everybody.
1: Yeah, he's um, one of the best. What I've heard, he was like one of the tops in Hedridge class.
2: Yeah, right. And he was well before me. We had heard about Kevin Harlan. You know, Kevin mm. Harlan was was sort of almost the a legend benchmark. Yeah, that's right. And he was he always had tremendous talent. Came from a sports family, obviously, with his his father, a, Bob a Harlan, a manager. Yep, with the, with the Packers and, and just the history that you know he grew up in. And I think that helped him. But uh, obviously, he had a penchant from it for it from the get go. And he's got a passion, and he works his tail off. Uh, he's wired that way, so, uh, but he's got a lot of insight, and he's he's been a very uh, kind and generous person with his time to me as well throughout uh, my my actually my latter portion of my career. I'd say in the last probably seven years or so, uh, I've gotten to know him. But anyway, yeah, a number of people that impact your career, and and you try to pay it forward as best as you can.
1: So, did you get a chance to meet Bob Davis?
2: I did. I I did meet Bob. Bob probably wouldn't know who I was, though. I didn't know Bob. His interactions with us were a little bit more limited when I was at at Kansas. Um, But, no, I, I never got to know Bob.
1: Right. So, when you finish up at Rock Chalk Jayhawk, KU... What was your first broadcast gig, and what do you remember about it?
2: <laughs> well, I, I remember it pretty well. Um, I graduated in December, so I was looking for a job, and I remember I almost I almost took a job in Chanute, Kansas, what? Uh, where, yeah, where, where a uh, a classmate of mine had been and was leaving. And I remember I was getting pressured, you know, you got to get this job. And I just, you know, I, I went there, I looked at it, nothing against any of your listeners who are from Chanute, but it was not for me. And I just at that point, I said, you know, I, look, I'm willing to pay dues, but I've, I've got to maintain my You got to get
1: your foot in the door somewhere other than a small market town in Kansas.
2: So I decided what I was going to do. This was really before the internet had really exploded. I mean, it was there, but it was still, you know, somewhat early. This will kind of date me a little bit here. But the, so I got in my car and I dropped off my tape at a number, I decided, all right, I'm going to find small stations. I just want to get reps, whatever I got to do to get reps. <sighs> I am going to drop my tape off my audio cassette tape with my, my reel. And I'm going to go to a number of stations around the area where I want to relocate. And so I knew I wanted to be in Colorado. And so I, I went around the state and dropped off my tape at various places that carried local high school sports. Right. And ultimately uh, almost got a job at steamboat. And I was really excited as a skier. That would have been awesome. And I remember I was close but they ended up not doing the sports format they were going to look at doing. So um, I may never have left there if I'd gotten that job. So maybe that's a good thing, but the uh, <laughs> I did end up landing in Loveland, Colorado, which is just South of Fort Collins. Basically it's Fort Collins now. I mean, it's, it's right in that area and in Northern Colorado. And it was a really small station. I mean, basically out of a trailer park. Um, and so the the guy who owned it ended up buying a station in Greeley and one in Estes park. I was doing sales and, you know, and actually Mike Rice, who's a friend of mine now to this day, and I actually just got the chance to visit with who's who's the new one of the new voices of the he's the new voice of the Colorado Rockies on the radio side. Yeah. And Mike was there. He was older than I was. Uh, he was actually my boss at one point. But uh, we I got to know him then. But then I got shifted over to Estes Park, which is right in the middle of Rocky Mountain National Park. Because I didn't, I didn't really love doing sales, so I was like, you know, they needed someone who could be an on-air person in the morning. You had to wear a number of hats, of course, and so I was on-air host,
1: that, news, traffic, that's media right. Sports. And so I was
2: like, you know what? I'll, I'll do the. I'd rather be on-air doing my wearing my various hats. And so I, I went up to Estes Park, and I was there for about a year, um, and yeah. Then ultimately, they started bouncing paychecks. <laughs> so at that Gee. point. I decided, uh, yeah, it was time to go. So then I, I, I found a job at, at uh, Sam Houston State. My first college job was after
1: that. I know somebody in one of the groups that I'm following is currently doing broadcast for Sam Houston State.
2: Ah, yeah. Currently. yeah Huntsville, Texas.
1: hmm Did you feel like at that point that was your big break, or did you feel like your big break was later after doing Sam Houston State? Or was Sam Houston State one of those where you're like, okay, I can get reps. I can call games. I'm at the college level. And if I do get an opportunity to go D1, D1, like with the ACC or wherever, I'll at least have some college reps on my resume and my broadcast reel.
2: All of those things. I, I think I wouldn't say it was my big break because it was still very, I mean, at the time, very small time. It was a, it was a, mom and pop station that I worked for and I was doing all the things I was doing in Colorado in addition to you know uh, broadcasting sports I was I was doing high school sports I was doing little league sports I was doing college sports for men and women I was at that time I called more games than I have at any point in my career and and the reps were so invaluable to me there but I can't say as I felt like okay I'm gonna make it now because I got this uh, my, my my really my first truly, I didn't know that I'd be able to do this for my career, truly until I got this job at Virginia thirteen years ago. Uh, that that was when I knew, hey, I am going to be able to do this, and I'm going to be able to get paid uh, a, a reasonable amount of money that uh, I can that I can do this for my for my career, and I won't have to worry about can I pay the bills. So, I would say that really was. The big break.
1: And you took over for a pretty good broadcaster in his own right, Matt McDonald.
2: That's right. Yep. Replaced Mac, who had, who had been <laughs> here uh, on two stints before. So he'd been here for about 25 years prior to, prior to my arrival or somewhere there in that neighborhood. Did
1: you take over his roles or was the director of broadcasting added to you later?
2: No, I took over his roles. Yep.
1: So, besides being the PXP guys, you still have to do some sales. But what other things?
2: I I don't do a ton of sales with this job. It's more, you know, network management, just overseeing the overall operation of our network, Um, and then, you know, obviously that includes the online piece that we're increasingly moving toward. um, Doing other production pieces for the, you know, the university, the Mm minutes, and uh, you know, interviews and building the broadcasts up, and then. Some off-season work with uh, obviously managing affiliates and trying to keep that going and and adding to it. And then some fundraising stuff too you you help with in terms of the athletics department. You'll host some events for them uh, with donors and those types of things. So, you know, there's a number of pieces that that fall into that category. But I do feel very fortunate that it is a place that recognizes the need for and and time that's devoted to preparation. So it's nice in that sense. Again, it is truly – um, uh, th- this is the job, and-, and it's appreciated in that sense. So I-, I am grateful for that.
1: So what's your usual prep when you're looking for storylines, you know, <clears throat> different things players-wise that you're looking for? You're about to head into a game week, not this week, but next week on the 19th.
2: Yeah. Th- and getting
1: ready for ACC play with a whole lot of, you know, different things and how you're going to, figure out how you're going to get your football broadcast crew. And then when you get to basketball, whenever hoop season starts, because that's the ever dreaded crossover.
0: Yeah. That's what you deal with. A
2: big part of it. The first thing I do is I, I really want to memorize players. That's the first thing I do. And I start very early on that. I'll start, you know, even on a Saturday night, if we play that Saturday or Sunday morning, the next morning, putting those flashcards together and, and beginning to, familiarize myself with their personnel, particularly the ones in the skill positions. And so I'm flashcarding all week. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm building out the skeleton of my broadcast board on Sundays, typically as well with, uh, with the you know, names and roster information, just building those out. And then I add the statistics on and then I'll go through uh, uh, you know the, the media guide or the website and, and try to pull out any interesting nuggets from there. And then you'll always be looking for news media pieces and and other additional uh, nuggets you can find from other avenues. And then listening to coaches that you talk to, whether it's through the week, and I probably won't talk to them as much this year because of all the restrictions with the pandemic. But the conversations you have with coaches uh, through press conferences as well, uh, coaches shows, and then you know, other tidbits you can glean. So you're always pulling those things together, uh, putting those onto your boards and adding to your notes and obviously pulling off of game notes that are put together and those types of things from the media relations staffs. But you just kind of pull it all together and and put it in a pot and really try to have a firm understanding of these teams and storylines and what are you going to develop and how are you going to go about doing that.
1: Can you get yourself too deep in the weeds with numbers or – overload your brain with or bored with too many tidbits to basically take away from the game broadcast and how do you decide what you're going to keep what you're going to get rid of and how do you try to put it together to create like storylines or maybe subplots that may come into play or may not.
2: Well, I think you can. I absolutely think you can get too far into the weeds. And sometimes that becomes very apparent when you do have a, a heavy workload where you just don't have the time to do some of the things that you would otherwise do. And the broadcast comes off just as well. But I, th- I think the important piece is identifying what are the key storylines going into that game? What are the three or four key storylines that you're going to really zero in on? But it, it's like taking an open book test, um, I, I always say, because you've got your notes all right there. Right. You're not going to use them all. In fact, for me, I probably, and you know, everybody's different. Some guys don't want to have that many notes in front of them. And I get that. For me, I like having them because then at least I've studied it. And and by putting them down, I, I have an understanding of it. And then if something arises, that's applicable that I can insert in there, then yeah, I will. But I think you need to, you don't, your story is on the field or it's on the court. It's not, on those boards. I mean, those are supplementary pieces and, and they're not, they shouldn't drive the broadcast in and of themselves. You don't want to force something in if it's not relevant, but if it is, I love knowing that it's there and I, and, and I can pull something out. That's a good nugget. But the truth of the matter is most listeners probably aren't going to look back and say, Ooh, that nugget he put in, uh, that was five seconds of a, five-hour broadcast in the middle of the third quarter was what made it go. No, I mean, it's consistency, and that's where when we talk about numbers, I do think knowing personnel is a big part of it, and, and really having familiarity of players, numbers, and so you can reference them quickly and smoothly, and there's not deliberation. I think that lends itself to a smooth-sounding broadcast, and it helps your credibility as well from that end, but you know, everybody's different with how much they want to incorporate. Every game is different with how much you want to incorporate just in terms of flow. And I think just doing these games and, and getting all those reps gives you a better understanding and feel for the flow of a game and, and, and how much you use. And, and look, there's no perfect broadcast. I get done with a broadcast and, you know, if I'm not sitting here saying I wish I would have said this one thing, I'm 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 saying I wish I wouldn't have said this other thing. So, you know, you're always evolving and that's what kind of makes it so fun is it's a craft that you're always trying to get better at.
1: Now, from what I've heard from a lot of broadcasters and and I'm still learning, trying to improve my craft, you're probably not going to use more than 5 to 10% of your notes because you may have like three or four pages full of notes, but you may only use not even half a page of the first page. But, you know, you're probably going to need that again and maybe tweak the notes and update it again. How do you, if you know you're going to see that team again for a second time, are there other things you're looking at or for from the first meeting you might come back to and how big are you and how big is film and what you're watching?
2: Well, for me, when I, when I'm watching film, a lot of what I'm watching and I I guess I should have included that in some of my preparation too but I I do watch film particularly I try to do it when I'm working out but I I like to do that just to to get a sense for familiarity in terms of identification as a play-by-play guy I think as an analyst you're looking at it from a different perspective and there's some of that you're looking at you want to be able to talk about in an informed way big moments in a game and say yeah you saw it but um I really do it more personally for identification purposes. I like to know what guys look like and and what kind of a role they play and just improve my familiarity with them so I can reference them in a more educated manner when I see them. But as it relates to previous games, yeah, I I think you keep your template and it makes preparing for that second meeting a heck of a lot easier because you've got all that, that information there, that template and that basis that you can build off of. You tweak it obviously to update their statistics, updates, if there's any more information on them. And, and I like to include what they did against that opponent previously. You know, I think that's all very relevant information too.
1: <laughs> Excuse me. When you're dealing with a trophy game, like the Commonwealth cup or ACC tournament and basketball or the NCAAs and you get to the national championship game or the final four, And each step along the way is a little bigger and a little bigger. Yeah, you know, as a broadcaster, you're supposed to just keep it normal and just call it like you see it. But when you know the lights are on and you know you're about to call a huge game, this is what we actually live for. But can you get yourself overhyped with emotions or nerves, even though you've called so many games? Like when you made it to the championship game, when you know, however long you've been calling basketball for the last thirteen years, dealing with a Tony Bennett type squad that plays the pack line defense, they haven't made the national championship game, coming off of, you know, the one sixteen loss against Minnesota, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, the Retrievers in 116 the year before that. So, how do you make sure that you take all those storylines to make sure that it's a part of the foundation to get you to here, even though each year is different, but you know it's a part of it?
2: Yeah, I'll tell you, the energy, dealing with the energy going into a big game, I'd be lying to you if I said it was the same because it's not.
0: Exactly.
2: I I woke up on the morning of the national championship, and I had more nerves than I expected. Uh, I really did. And and I think you realize (laughs) the gravity of the moment and that this is a historic moment for this program. There's never another first there's right. never another first national championship game that team plays for but then you got to remind yourself that this is what you've done this for all these years you know how to do this this is you you have been working your whole career to do this, this? All the reps that's right so you 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 have to trust your experience you have to trust your instinct and then at the same time you also have to remind yourself that this is fun this is what you're doing this for so lean into that part of it and, and, you know, the other thing that was interesting that day, I'll never forget, too, and this is one of the other, uh, to me, tremendous luxuries and gifts that I've had in my career is having the chance to work with a guy like Tony Bennett. I'll never forget the day of that game. I sat and talked to him for about an hour after we taped our pregame, and then we got philosophical. But I'll tell you what, he calmed me down, uh, which was amazing. He calmed me <laughs> down. And here he is about to coach his first national championship, but that just gives you an idea for the level of balance of a guy like Tony Bennett. I mean, what you see is what you get. He he really is a unique individual. But uh, yeah, that that was one thing I'll never forget either. But I'll also say this too: having gone through what we had the previous year, two years, mm-hmm. all of those thrilling games leading up to that point, it, you you kind of get used to it, and and it's it's it becomes you learn how to manage your emotions. And, and candidly, those tight games, when it's that much on the line, if you're not careful, you, you can, your heart rate can get going as a fan, as a broadcaster, whatever it is, got to learn to normalize it and, and remind yourself you're the professional. This is your job. And I think I've done this long enough that I'm I'm grateful yeah. that I had that Level of perspective that I could bring it to that moment um, and enhance the broadcast. I
1: thank the current radio voice of the Bucks and longtime broadcaster for the Virginia Cavaliers, Dave Kane, for being my guest on this week's episode of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. Please rate, subscribe, and review the Blind Broadcaster Podcast at the King Broadcast Network on your favorite podcast platform. Directly. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you can at King underscore TSB, Instagram lking.cardinalsfan85 and you can email me or look me up on Facebook at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com for suggestions you'd like to have me interview on the podcast. And if you'd like more information about the podcast, you can look up The Blind Broadcaster Podcast Facebook page And for play-by-play events Hook up the Luther King Broadcast Network Page for play-by-play Until next time This has been Another exciting episode of The Blind Broadcaster Podcast A proud entity of the Luther King Broadcast
0: Network You've been listening to the Blind Broadcaster podcast, presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network. Each episode, Luther King sits down with fellow broadcasters to get their insight into their passion for broadcasting and discuss their career journey. Line from birth, Luther King never let that stop him from attaining his goal of becoming a blind broadcaster. To find out more about the Blind Broadcaster podcast, presented by the Luther King Broadcast Network, search the Blind Broadcaster podcast or Luther King Broadcast Network on social media, or visit Luther King Broadcast Network. Network.com.